Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Pastor Larry looks closely at the Millennial Temple of Ezekiel, and we'll continue our series on why we should study Bible prophecy with Steve Butler. Our next Clarity to the Chaos Conference is less than a month away, Saturday and Sunday, April 15th and 16th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Greg Patton, Micah Van Huss, Josh Davis, Larry Stam, Lonnie Shipman, and Kenneth Copley will all be presenting how you and I can have clarity in the midst of all the chaos that's around us. Visit the events page of our website, swrc.com, for complete speaker lineup and schedule. swrc.com and click on events. Time to get our Bibles out and join author and teacher Steve Butler for today's look at the importance of exploring Bible prophecy. We're going to pick up on point number six, entitled, Why Explore Bible Prophecy? And in our last program, we were in Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, written, oh, 650 years before Christ walked the earth, and we're going through prophecies of Christ's first coming, written all those centuries before, and then we're going through each point with a New Testament fulfillment to show that the Bible is extremely, I mean, it's perfect, actually, perfect in its prophecies of the future. As we go through each one of those points and we see the fulfillment of those scriptures, it should give us a extreme confidence that unlike any other book in the history of mankind, that these books that prophesy about the future, if already a good portion of those prophecies have been fulfilled from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that before they were prophesied about Christ, for instance, which is now 2,000 years in the past to us, if they come to pass in such great accuracy, why should we have any doubt that the prophecies that have to do with yet future to us would come to pass exactly as they were prophesied? And that's the point about studying Bible prophecy is to have that confidence of Old Testament prophesying what ends up being fulfilled in the New Testament in exact time and place, circumstance, and theme, if you will, that if it happened then, it will happen in the future as well. And of course, that's the issue we have today as the church is we have naysayers that say, well, no, that was all made up in the past. It's all just fairy tales, and we have no no understanding of what the future looks like. It's, it's, you need to go see your local palm reader or your soothsayer or your astrologist or whatever. And I say, absolutely not. You have God's word, the God that created the universe, that gave every one of us breath from Adam all the way up to now and will into the future. He has given us a book comprised of 66 individual books that tells us exactly what he wants us to know about the future. And believe me, as you find out as you study this, it's in great detail, just amazing detail. And not only detail for the sake of detail, but it's detail that is proven out to be absolute fact. And if you've been with us for a while as we've gone through these points, and there's 13 points that we're going through, and we're in number six now, you can see already the veracity of what we're talking about here. 
So looking at point number six, it says prophecy, especially already fulfilled prophecy, confirms the accuracy and therefore the authority of God's word. So that's what we're looking to do here in these programs dealing with point number six. We're in our list of Old Testament scriptures here in point number six, and we're looking at Isaiah 61, and we were discussing that in our last program. And one of the the interesting things about Isaiah 61, the first three verses, is that there is a break in these first three verses. And again, remember that when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. Uh, In fact, the Isaiah scroll which you can see in the uh, scroll museum in Jerusalem, is one big long scroll of parchment with no divisions. One of the amazing things we noticed when my, my wife and our family were there back in 2013, I think it was, we saw a little boy looking at the Isaiah scroll, which was this copy is a Dead Sea scroll that I think now is probably 2100 years old it was written 100 years before Christ that they found in the um, the caverns there in the Dead Sea area and he was reading it and that's one of the amazing things the amazing things about God's word written in Hebrew that this nation called Israel that was dispersed to the world in 70 AD by the Romans And they lost everything. They lost their nation. They lost their homeland, their homes. They lost everything except their language. And the language was reconfirmed when they came back as a nation, actually before 1948, started around the beginning of the the last century. But everything was confirmed when they got their homeland back in 1948. And no country, no people in the history of the world except for Israel have been able to come back from being totally dispersed and not assimilated into the cultures of where they were dispersed, but were able to come back to Israel and reform after 2,000 years and bring back their culture and bring back their language just as it had been before so that this little boy could stand there in this museum of the scroll in Jerusalem and read the Isaiah scroll. That's just amazing, and you cannot explain that in any other way except but God, but God, because that was his plan. So we see here in Isaiah 61 that there are 2,000 years between the first part of Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and the second part. And let me read that one more time just for clarification. It says in Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Next line, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then we went to Luke chapter four, and this is early in Jesus' ministry. 
and he goes back to his uh, hometown because that's where his parents were from called Nazareth up in the central part of the northern part of Israel called the Galilee, central Galilee, and he preached in the temple that Sunday. And they uh, traditionally would go through the Old Testament, and it just turned out, of course God planned it that way, but it turned out that on that particular Sabbath when Jesus stood up to read, he was given Isaiah chapter 61, and he read verse 1, and the first line of verse 2, and then he closed the scroll and he sat down. Before he closed the scroll, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he closed the scroll and he sat down. And the point is, he was describing what he was going to do in his first coming, because he knew before the beginning of time that when he came to Israel in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, about their having a Messiah promised to come to them who would restore the kingdom to Israel as it was in the time of David and Solomon, and that they would be the preeminent people group once again among the nations, that he was coming to do that. But it would only happen if the people accepted him. And the people did not accept him. Israel did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. So he he was basically telling telling them in uh, this scripture that everything through line one of verse two would be fulfilled in his first coming, but it would take a period of time before the second part would be fulfilled, and that was starting with line two of verse two, and that says, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's a description of the tribulation period when God will take his vengeance out on the earth, the wrath of God will be poured out in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And then he says, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. That is a description. Actually, it goes on past verse three, all the way on down there about the blessings that he promised to Israel would come to Israel that would have happened during his first coming if they had believed him. But because he's a covenant-keeping God, he will do it a second time, and Israel will accept him as their Messiah, and he will bless them. And as it says in verse 3, grant them a garland instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, and so forth and so on. So he is that covenant-keeping, covenant-fulfilling God, but there's going to be a period of time between his first coming and his second coming. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 61. And we see that in some other places in Isaiah as well. We won't go there. But we see where you'll have a series of two or three verses. And right in the middle of one of those verses, he shifts from his first coming to a description of his second coming. So even in the Old Testament, the Jews over and over and over again were given a look at his first coming and then a vision of his second coming. The point being that even though you turned your back on me, I'm a covenant-keeping God, and I do not turn my back to you for very long. I will come back as promised. So we see that as another one of those wonderful, fulfilled prophecies, fulfilled promises that are made hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ that are fulfilled through Christ, as, of course, we're told about to look for all the way from Genesis on through to look forward to the fulfillment of all the promises through Jesus Christ and no one else.
So let's go on to our next passage, the book of Malachi, and that's the last book in the Old Testament written about 400 years before Christ. So let's move from Isaiah about 650 years before Christ to the right in your Bible and go through Jeremiah and Jeremiah's book, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel and then Daniel. And starting with Hosea, we have the what are called the minor prophets. And Malachi is the last one before you come to Matthew. So if you, if you get to Matthew, you've gone a little too far to the right. Go back up into Malachi, and we're going to go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and here we're going to look at a prophecy about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, the announcer, if you will, of uh, Jesus Christ starting his ministry. So let's look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And again, this was written about 400 years before Christ uh, through the leading of the Holy Spirit to the prophet Malachi. Behold, verse 1, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we see there in this one simple verse an announcement that I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me, and that's talking about Jesus Christ coming. And it says Jesus will come to his temple. And, of course, we see in several places, and in the New Testament in Matthew 25, it says when Jesus comes and sits on his glorious throne, and that throne is going to be in the temple that is described in extreme detail in the book of Ezekiel from chapter oh, 40 to 40, let's see, there's 48 chapters, I think through chapter 47, the details, extreme details of what his millennial kingdom temple will look like, and Jesus will sit in that temple, and people of the earth at that time will come to Jerusalem and stand before Jesus in his throne for that period of a thousand years. That's the the glorious promise fulfilled to the kingdom of Israel and to the earth, to those who pass through the judgments of the tribulation that inherit the kingdom on the earth. They will see him in his temple. But John would be sent before him in order to um, announce his coming. So let's take this and go to Luke chapter 1 and see about the fulfillment of this in Luke chapter 1. Now, as we get to Luke chapter 1 and we go to verse 76, Luke chapter 1, verse 76, we should remember here again that when Jesus Christ came to this earth the first time, he came to fulfill Old Testament covenant promises of the Messiah, the conquering king, would come And if Israel would accept him, he would set up his kingdom right then. And when he came the first time, that was his intention, although he knew that Israel would reject him because he's God. He had that foreknowledge. But nevertheless, he gave them plenty of chance to do that, and they rejected him. But nevertheless, because he came, he would send his messenger. And that messenger in this case is John the Baptist. When he comes again, his messenger is going to be another individual that's prophesied, and we'll talk about that later. 
Let's look at chapter 1 of Luke, verse 76, and it says, And you, child, talking about John the Baptist here being born, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. So we see John the Baptist at his birth, the prophecy that he would be the promised messenger that would go before the Lord that was prophesied back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. We have an outstanding resource for you to consider today that will keep you informed and deepen your knowledge of Bible prophecy. Prophecy in the News Magazine. Prophecy in the News Magazine equips you with useful articles and insight written from a biblical perspective and always encouraging you to keep looking up. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if the resurrection had never occurred? Find out in the latest issue of the Prophecy in the News magazine. Subscribe to Prophecy in the News magazine today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Pastor Larry Spargimino comes now to take a close look at the Millennial Temple of Ezekiel. There have been a number of Bible commentators who have come up with elaborate ideas allegedly proving that Ezekiel's temple described in chapters 40 through 48 of his book is not a real temple. They claim these chapters are an allegorical description of something else, whatever that may be. The language of these chapters provides a great amount of specific details regarding this temple. It is like an architect's blueprint. If it is not speaking about a literal structure, why all the details? It is important to remember that Ezekiel was a Jewish priest living during the years of the Babylonian captivity. The existence of Solomon's temple was, for the Jews of old, proof that God was on their side. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, therefore, was more than a destruction of a building. It was a theological crisis. The promise of a literal temple was proof that God will forgive their sin and cleanse them from all iniquity. It was a convincing sign to Israel that God was still faithful to his covenant. All the wonderful millennial promises would be literally fulfilled, and the presence of a literal temple was the most wonderful promise of all for the people of God. If we're not a literal temple, it would be like inviting a starving man to a turkey dinner only to find nothing more than a pile of feathers. In the words of Dr. Charles Dyer, and I'm quoting him, The climax of Israel's restoration as a nation will come when God's glory re-enters the new temple in Jerusalem. The new temple will become the visible reminder of Israel's relationship with God. Since God gave detailed instructions for building the tabernacle to accompany his inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, that's in Exodus chapters 25 through 40, it is not unusual that he would also supply detailed plans for his new center of worship to accompany the implementation of the new covenant. This temple will be the focal point for the visible manifestation of Israel's new relationship with her God. Close quotes. Why then do many commentators argue that Ezekiel's temple is not a literal temple? 
The answer? Because of the animal sacrifices. People argue and say, we don't need animal sacrifices because Jesus Christ has made a perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. No additional sacrifices are needed. The sacrificial system has been surpassed. Therefore, we are not to take Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 literally. That's what a lot of people say. Now, like I say, that's a common argument. Why do we need priests? Why do we need sacrifices? All valid questions. But let's focus our thinking. Let's think this thing through. First of all, animal sacrifices never took away sin. Only the sacrifice of the Son of God could do that, as explained in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, and verse 10. The animal sacrifices were acts of obedience to God and showed submission to the divinely revealed idea, the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Secondly, even after the resurrection of Christ, Jewish believers in Christ still took part in temple worship, Acts 2.46, 3.1, and 5.2. They even took part in the offering of sacrifices according to Acts 21.26. They saw these sacrifices as looking back to the sacrifice of Christ, even as is true in the Lord's Supper, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, 1 Corinthians 11.26. The sacrifices of the Old Testament had no real efficacy, but they gave worshipers an opportunity to respond to God with humble obedience. According to Dr. Dwight Pentecost in his classic work on Bible prophecy, Things to Come, pages 521 and 522, Several of the items that were in Solomon's temple are missing or modified in the Millennial Temple. There is no Ark of the Covenant, no pot of manna, no rod of Aaron that budded, no tables of the law, no cherubim, no mercy seat, no golden candlestick, no showbread, no veil, no unapproachable holy of holies where the high priest alone might enter, nor is there any high priest to offer atonement for sin. Moreover, the Levites are not present in the Millennial Temple. The only men eligible to enter the priesthood are the sons of Zadok. Zadok was the chief priest during Solomon's reign and remained faithful to God while many Jews were turning away from God, according to 44.15. His descendants will be honored by their appointment to serve God in the priestly role in the Millennial Temple. One of the greatest differences in the Millennial Temple is an enigmatic figure known as the Prince. Who is the Prince? There has been much discussion as to the Prince's identity. He is not Jesus Christ because he offers a sin offering for himself, according to chapter 45, verse 22, and his sons are mentioned, according to chapter 46 and verse 16. In 46.18, the Prince is in possession of an allotment of land. The prince will himself eat a meal in the eastern gate before the Lord, as indicated in 44.15. The geographical references and places mentioned in these chapters are factual. For example, in Ezekiel 47, 6-9, we read that the healing waters from the temple will descend into the Arabah, that's the deep depression of the Jordan Valley that extends to the Gulf of Aqaba. The waters will transform the whole region so that along the banks of the river will grow fruit-bearing trees producing food and leaves that will have medicinal properties. Yet the marshy areas will not be healed, that is, they will not become fresh water, 
showing that the kingdom age will not be perfect in every way, but the last age in time, with the curse of sin lifted, but not yet removed completely. Seeing Ezekiel's temple as a literal temple is especially difficult for Christians who are Reformed, and this is true for two reasons. First, many Reformed Christians hold to replacement theology and see the church as having inherited all of Israel's blessings. The idea of a future Jewish temple in the land of Israel just is not compatible with replacement theology. When theology controls exegesis, you have a real problem. Secondly, Reformed Christians do not believe in a literal millennial temple because of the concept of a one covenant of grace embracing redemptive history from the fall to the consummation. There is no room in this one covenant of grace for different administrations of God's kingdom agenda. For dispensationalists, however, the idea that following the rapture of the church another dispensational period would follow is not at all unusual. To summarize, there are very good reasons to believe that the temple described by the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48 of his book is a literal temple in every way. All attempts to make Ezekiel's temple refer to the church, to the heavenly state, or some other reference are fraught with difficulties and violate the plain meaning of the Bible. And now, let's join Larry Stamm with today's Messianic Minute. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here with the Messianic Minute, Biblical Connections Through a Jewish Lens. God is in the newness business. For example, he promised future deliverance for the Jewish people living under present judgment when he said in Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, I will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Jesus spoke of the new birth in John chapter 3, while the Apostle Paul said about believers in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And ultimately, in Revelation 21 verse 5, the Lord proclaims, Behold, I make all things new. Thank God for new things He's done and will do. For more connections, visit our website at LarryStam.org or see our Larry Stam Ministries Facebook page. Thanks, Larry. Friends, we continue to have a tremendous response to our brand new Timely Tools catalog. Timely Tools highlights the latest resources from your friends here at Watchmen on the Wall and SWRC. Each month, this beautiful catalog is delivered to you full of the latest books, DVDs, and other timely resources designed to inform you and encourage your faith. Timely Tools is a free way to stay up to date on all the latest DVDs and books by your favorite speakers and teachers. So make sure you get your copy of Timely Tools by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, you and I will be introduced to a very special person, someone who has been touching lives for Christ for over 30 years. It's the Jesus Lady. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Please visit our website, 
swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Thank you.